0: Insight, Innovation, Transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to our first inaugural edition of our Government Mandates Podcast. We're hoping to bring you these recordings quarterly or as necessary while mandates are occurring and guidance comes, becomes available. Today, we have an exciting panel for you. We have Ed Hafner from Change Healthcare, and Ed is also very involved in various industry groups, including Weedy. And we have Ferris Taylor from the Healthcare Executive Group. They are going to be talking about an exciting survey commissioned by Change Healthcare and uh, the Healthcare Executive Group. Where we asked payers across the country questions about the No Surprises Act and how they are preparing for it and how they feel it will impact their business. Um, I would like to uh, kick it off to you both to kind of describe the survey and uh, why we got together to field it, what the results are, and why they're so important.
2: Love to step in uh, first, Chelsea, in a sense, and thank you for uh, to change healthcare. Uh, for uh, co-sponsoring this uh, research with the Healthcare Executive Group and, uh, and especially Ed and uh, the, the Change team that uh, have, uh, have facilitated this and we're excited to be part of this, uh, this series. Um, at the Healthcare Executive Group this last year, we have held Probably over a dozen roundtables on what we call the HCG top 10 issues. And everybody can look at those at hcg.org. Um, and in addition, we've had webinars and, uh, and uh, other surveys as well. And it surprised me that the No Surprises Act, or NSA, as Ed and I will refer to it, is, has come up in almost every single discussion that we've had. And the range of perspectives on the the survey are so broad that we needed a baseline. Uh, It's it's natural that the healthcare executive group would partner with uh, Change Healthcare as Change has been a technology sponsor of HCG for many years. And together each year for the last 10 years, we've done an annual industry pulse survey. Uh, Last year in the middle of COVID, we did a COVID flash survey. On the HCG top 10 and expanded that top 10 set of issues. So uh, my perspective or the H- healthcare executive group's perspective is that the No Surprises Act will la- likely be a very watershed act and piece of uh, legislation. And so both HCG and Change wanted to get the pulse from the healthcare industry on the regulation, on the thinking about. Uh, the No Surprises Act and get started on things that can be done, done to help the preparation for, for that. So that's the reason and why, at least from my perspective, these, this is uh, so important. Uh, Ed?
3: Yeah, thanks, Ferris. And first of all, it's a pleasure presenting with you. Uh, I've always enjoyed your, uh, your friendship and uh, it's fun to do a podcast together and appreciate HCG to uh, help us with the survey. Uh, When it comes to the reason why Change Healthcare uh, went ahead with this uh, survey, was partially Change Healthcare wanted to understand the health plan perspective well, uh, to develop solutions that are really meaningful, but we also wanted to do it for the industry. Uh, We wanted health plans to consider this information in your planning and understanding how your peers uh, feel about each other. So that's how I would answer that, Chelsea.
1: Awesome, thank you both so much for that great perspective. So Ed and Ferris, uh, first question here, uh, can you describe, survey, the reason, uh, you know, Change Healthcare and the Healthcare Executive Group got together to field it, why the results are important uh, to both payers and providers? Uh,
3: Ed? So, so first of all, there are a number of different important takeaways, but the ones that were most meaningful for me was that there was a large proportion of folks that are just waiting on the rules to be established. Uh, there for a while, people are all excited. It's January 1st, 2022. We need to get it done. And we're seeing different sorts of guidance that says that you know, the, the more, more, uh, we'll be getting more understanding of how the rules will be laid out you know, after January 1st, uh, 2022, uh, particularly, on, of course, on the advanced explanation of benefits, which has been a really um, you know, hot topic. Um, On the qualified payment amount or the QPA uh, that's involved in emergency billing and out of network uh, provider type activity. um, I was really surprised that is actually part of the uh, interim final rule part one that's due out on January 1st, 2022. And it's still presenting a significant challenge for many of the payers that were surveyed. Uh, So even with that deadline so close. Uh, it's going to be a little scary to see how many people are going to be able to meet that. Um, the other part that was really surprising to me was the uh, recognition of customer service impact. I believe one of the questions Ferris was, you know, extreme impact or or, 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 or heavy impact or extreme impact, and uh, it was a huge percentage that felt that both the member and the provider services uh, would increase. Uh, related to these provisions. And uh, the awareness is really important, but also for the health plans listening to this podcast, I think it's a call out to you to really understand what that impact might be to your organization.
2: Absolutely. And uh, and thank you, Ed, uh, for the overview. I'm sure we will provide a link to the uh, actual uh, research itself, but you're right. Half the uh, responders believe that uh, requests and explanations and complaints around various aspects, including what you mentioned in terms of the advanced DOB, will have an extremely high impact on customer service. That's, uh, that's a huge number, especially this uh, at this time in the whole implementation of the No Surprises Act. And, and, and you know, in, in, in jest, it should be no surprise that we would have the No Surprises Act uh, uh, because, you know, this is a pair problem, a provider problem, and, and a, a, a member, a patient, and a, a, a consumer problem. And in some ways, I think we've all become a little bit calloused around healthcare and sort of put up with the idiosyncrasies of healthcare. And the voice has gotten so strong at the uh, congressional and, uh, Senate level that now we have mandates. And so, um, with that, one of the, uh, key takeaways that I saw, and you mentioned it is the number of people that are so unsure or uncertain, uh, about, uh, the, the no surprises act nearly two thirds of the payers are still deciding on how to deliver an advanced, uh, EOB and, uh, um, that's, um, this late in the game is, is definitely a concern. January 1st is coming and there will be more details and more, uh, uh, more changes coming. So responding or preparing to respond is, is a surprise to me, a takeaway that, uh, needs attention. I think that, all of us in our lives. If there's something that we don't know, we start thinking about alternatives. And it just seems logical here that um, uh, we ought to be thinking about uh, alternatives. Another thing that isn't as obvious in the statistics that we shared in the the research itself, but I I noticed it in, in a couple of three different places as we were going through the detail. And that is that there are very different perspectives across the organization. And part of that is that the No Surprises Act affects so many different departments of both the payer organization, the provider organization. And uh, so uh, one one of my insights or takeaways is the No Surprises Act is going to require a much higher level of communication up and down the organization, but also across the uh, side-by-side in the organization or the silos in the organization. And executives need to be listening to the frontline staff. Frontline staff, when they see something, they need to be communicating up. I mentioned the roundtables. We had one round table and not to embarrass anybody, but it was it was a person in the revenue part of a payer organization when we when the topic of the No Surprises Act came up. And the comment was, so what is the No Surprises Act? Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> the research definitely shows that that's, uh, that's an important issue. Healthcare in and of itself, and I think the focus for years has been on efficiency, sort of Adam Smith, uh, uh, sort of economics, uh, uh, supply, demand, control, Jack Welch top-down management, the, the doctor prescribes, the patient takes the medication sometimes. Uh, this is going to require a very different leadership style and frontline staff style. We're moving into, we're making a transition into a digital age. And we'll talk later about the importance of that. And in the digital age, it isn't top down. If we go top down, bottom up, the problem is seen at the bottom. We send it up to the management team, they allocate resources, uh, and then they create an organization to, to support that. It's not gonna work in the digital world. We have to be more agile and quick and nimble. Uh, So those are some of the uh, key takeaways. I do think that the No Surprises Act will accelerate the need for coordination, cooperation, uh, communication across departments, and uh, especially this involves the consumer and the patient. So it will be important uh, for all of us.
1: Thank you, Ferris. Yeah, it is definitely an exciting time to be in healthcare. I mean, I always say healthcare is great. We're always going to need it, and the only certain thing is change for sure. So, thank you for all of that. Um, I know you mentioned quite a bit about the advanced explanation of benefits. Um, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that, um, the AEOBs, and also the QPAs. And um, I don't know if you want to take this one first.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll step in, and I, I sort of transition from uh, the last. Uh, you know points that I, I made. All of us, and you just said it, Ch- Chelsea. We're all consumers of healthcare. That's a little bit different than uh, other industries where not everybody is is directly a consumer. And we all know the horror stories from the past. I, I we could spend an hour just sharing among the three or four of us the uh, uh, the the things. It's it's not. Totally about an advanced exclamation of benefit or a qualified payment amount. It's about the whole process of healthcare, making healthcare more understandable uh, for members. Uh, uh, the billing, the uh, uh, the variation in prices that that we see, and and th- that unknown aspect of healthcare doesn't fit with the consumers' expectations in other industries. Okay, I want to fly from point A to point B, and I I go online and I, I see what flights are available, and I see what the prices are, and I make a decision. Uh, that doesn't work in healthcare. And so uh, you know, I believe that the trust levels in healthcare that are low for payers are are a reflection of not addressing some of these issues like advanced uh, EOBs and and like qualified payments, uh, and you know part of the question uh, Chelsea was uh, you know will it be a, um, a a paper or an electronic process? A paper process will not work in this. It may be transitioned with paper early on. We had a roundtable just last week, and uh, uh, one of the uh, participants said, you know, for for the short term, we're just hiring people. We're going to throw manpower at this. Uh, That won't work a long time. There's too much need for real-time information, too much need for accuracy uh, around uh, the the whole uh, No Surprises Act requirements. And I do believe that COVID has contributed or played a part in, in this discussion around the No Surprises Act in the sense that we have members now that are much more conscious of, of health and their, their health and well-being and the costs of health care uh, because it's been in the media. They're, they're a- awakened to and want to be more healthy. And this is a process that could engage the members in a much more dynamic way as long as we as providers and payers and technology vendors and all stakeholders jump on board and look at the big issue of consumer transformation a digital transformation and i i, I suspect that you you have a lot to say about that as well
3: yeah, Ferris, I want to take you uh, take us a little bit deeper into the weeds, and I know there's a big summit tomorrow, uh, November 16th, so if you're listening to this podcast and you missed it, and you didn't attend this summer, I wish I could catch you, um, but please attend. I think you mentioned that like, there's like 80 different topics that we're going to cover just related to the advanced explanation of benefits, and I'm going to name a few that I think are really important considerations uh, about the advanced explanation of benefits. Uh, you know, when a convening provider uh, submits a predetermination request for an advanced explanation of benefit, you know, there are other providers that are involved. And, you know, how, how does that information get over to the payer? Uh, what if there's multiple health plans that are being involved in be able to generate, uh, you know, how much would be out of pocket for the, for the, you know, the patient uh, based on, you know, the, the, who's going to pay what in the back end? Uh, The complexity of the procedures, I mean, it's almost like it's, um, you know, it's a range, right? I mean, sometimes it could be easy, sometimes it could get more complex. And and so, gosh, uh, if those estimates aren't accurate, it's going to cause a a lot of problems. I I wish that the, hope the response can actually give a range to be able to, you know, set the expectations correctly. Uh, I could just see that be a key driver to driving up those customer service calls we talked about earlier today uh, by both providers and by members as well as uh, potential legal action uh, from from those constituents um, on payer side you know I know when you adjudicate a, a claim there's lots and lots of rules and there's a need to be able to move as many of those rules forward to be able to come up with the best estimate to, to come up with more of a uh, you know, uh, uh, estimate that you can feel comfortable with, um, but it's going to be challenging to do that. And I know a lot of the adjudication vendors are, are prepping to uh, to come up with estimation capabilities. But it's you know it's it's a real it's a real consideration. And again, paper delivery, Ferris, you that out really well. I guess if it's a three day estimate, you know, let's do a you know express mail if it's a t- scheduled ten days or or you know. Uh, you know, 10 days or later, I think that's what the rule says. You have three days to be able to um, deliver that AEOB, um, but, you know, many of them won't be. And so one day deliverable paper is going to be pretty tough. Uh, So so hopefully I gave you enough to entice you to come to the summit tomorrow if if you're able to listen to this on time.
2: And I suspect there'll be a recording available of it too, Ed. It, 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 It will be very interesting. Yeah, thank you, Ferris.
1: Awesome, wow, so interesting. You guys are just li- listening to your brains. is just so much fun, I'm learning too. Um, so I know this is a little bit of a spicy topic coming up next, but um, I know we're talking about estimates and there's a lot of debate, I think, between the payers and providers on the beginning uh, price for the qualifying payment amount. Um, would love to hear, Ed, your thoughts on, uh, on that.
3: You know, um, I'll keep this answer uh, pretty short. Um, I think the rules are pretty clear on how to actually calculate the qpa you know you follow the, the federal then the state and then comes to time to do the qualified payment amount but where it gets a bit fuzzy is if you don't have enough contracts for that particular geography for that particular procedure code for that specialty then it gets fuzzy i hear vendors talking about different approaches using history or uh, using third parties to come up with some of that, utilizing the independent dispute resolution process and an arbitrator to come up with prices. And oh my gosh, you wanna do that for everyone that she can't come up with. So that that that's the part that I think is the um, the hardest part is, is, you know what if you can't generate the QPA? And related to the IDR itself, uh, it does favor the payer, um, but, but it also makes them prove that they, have done the QPA process correctly. I think that's what the independent, what the arbitrator is going to be mostly focused on if they can do that. That's my take, Varys.
2: And 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 I was hoping we could duck this question. HCP <laughs> is involved with both the uh, the payers, the insurers, and with the providers, and there is a lot of controversy around it. Uh, and you're right, the uh, the guidelines that were just issued are pretty clear. Uh, I I, w- I would say Ed, that the lawsuits and the settlement of the lawsuits are not quite as clear at this point. So we'll see where this goes. But it's it was interesting to me at the reaction I, in any price negotiation somebody has to mention the first price. That's, that's where the negotiations start. And in my experience with seminars on, and conferences on training uh, price negotiating people, you don't want to be the first one to put the price out there. Right. Well, the regulations actually say, okay, payer, it's on you. You have to put the first price out there. But I I, I do appreciate what you said, Ed, and that is that this IDR process is all, of, it's a process, and it's about calculating even that first uh, qualified payment amount appropriately, correctly, fairly, equitably, and it won't be easy. Uh, there's terabytes of data in some markets. There's no data in other markets. Uh, and so, given the complexity of coding and rural versus urban, and uh, you know this uh, intervention being an intense one versus a, a less intense one, I, I think it will be important on both the provider and the payer side to really prepare for. The the whole price resolution process, and especially for the providers to be prepared to defend their arguments for higher prices. That's part of the uh, IDR process. So just be prepared for it.
1: Such a great point. Um, so <laughs> switching gears just a little bit. I know you mentioned uh, coding, and we know that's always been a bit of a bit of a mess. Uh, how many codes are there now? And, and who uses more than just a few? And does that relate to the NSA at all? I think, uh, Ferris, you could take that one maybe.
2: Whoa. So, yeah. you know, in answer to the, the technical part of your question, I believe the ICD 10 has something like 69,700 different codes. It was a big change. Uh, I mean, IDC, I, it was a big change from IDC 9 that had less specific codes. Um, and, and, and it is true. As I've been around the industry for 30 years and been in provider offices, um, uh, providers naturally end up in a cadence where, you know, these are the CPT codes that I typically bill under. And it's a, it's a small set of, of CPT codes, uh, but that is going to have to be re- relooked at. Uh, we could spend an hour on the the coding uh, discussion, but the medical coding coders in the organization, that part of the organization is going to have to have a lot closer communication and clearer communication with the providers as to what the appropriate level of the detail in the coding is going to need to be. And all of those additional codes that were added with ICD-10 uh, really have something to do with the severity or the complications of the p- particular intervention. And uh, all of us have seen uh, EOBs that have come with codes in. my my wife had one where it involved her knee and when I looked at the code, I said that's that's a shoulder Cpt code. <laughs> and she was, proactive enough to call and say, oh, it's about the same cost, not a problem. That will never work in the IDR process. If we go into the IDR process with that kind of information, it's gonna be, um, be an unfortunate process. So I would uh, also put out there that um, the, the No Surprises Act is gonna have implications for uh, bundled or unbilling, unbundling Codes and for this transition to value-based reimbursement, like you said, Elk, Chelsea, it's already messy. Uh, this isn't going to make it less messy. In fact, is it's just going to make the messiness much more important for everyone. Um, and and I'm sure Ed that you have a lot more detailed insight there as to to what's involved or needs to be involved. Yeah, I'll just add a little bit there, Ferris, and
3: you know something. I, I, I hate to say this but sometimes I actually enjoy reading the rules. <laughs> you know the, you know they talk about the comments and this is this is where we stand on from a health and human services perspective and uh, one that was really interesting to me was in the act itself. Uh, they mentioned that not only can the provider request an advanced explanation benefit but the member can and that you should be able to express descriptions of the uh, of the actual procedure, as opposed to using the coding. You know, why have the you know members or or patients being able to you know, know these codes? Of course, it's hard for the providers to do so, let alone uh, you know the 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 patients. And so, uh, with all these different codes, can you imagine a drop-down list for maybe 300, 400 different drop-downs for a, a knee replacement, and having the you know the um, knowledge to be able to select the right one? Uh, you know, the specificity of ICD-10 is wonderful, but it really takes an under, you know, a medical understanding or medical coding understanding for someone to do that. So that's going to be really, really, really hard for the, the member to do. And also thinking about it, and something that I haven't heard anybody speak of in, in, in recent days or, or really any time with No Surprises Act, is related to the specificity. If the provider puts out a, a request for advanced explanation of benefits and codes a severe uh, level for that particular code, you know, it's a really acute procedure. It's something that's going to, you know, involve lots and lots of work. Well, the payer may not believe it. You know, the health plan may not believe it. Show me the attachment that supports whether that's true or not. I mean, the need to be able to have medic- to show medical necessity is an interesting uh, concept it's really used a lot in in the claims environment. I would think it would be used in the predetermination request process as well. So uh, I'm anxious to see in real practice. You know, I, you know, I wish providers and payers trusted each other more, and you know, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid that that trust issue may carry over to the actual predetermination request world as well.
2: And this is another one of those Ed where I think. Um, Tomorrow's discussion with uh, Weedy, which is the work groups on electronic data, is it exchange? It um, uh, are going to be so important? Um, uh, really getting into this question. Yeah, I agree.
0: You're listening to the Change Healthcare podcast. We're enabling a better, more efficient healthcare system. Whether you need to improve operational efficiency, optimize financial performance, or enhance the consumer experience. We offer the industry insight and innovative technology to help you meet your objectives. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.
1: It's a really interesting um, time, I think, in healthcare, given that it seems like with the No Surprises Act, it's very much cons- you know consumer of healthcare facing. It's like someone is thinking of the patient, and it's you know, all the coding, and all of that is very difficult to decipher as a layperson, and so... It's, it's exciting um, that, that someone's putting the consumer first. I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. But anyway, it sounds like there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, I know that we still don't have any defined rules um, in a lot of the areas coming from HHS. Uh, what would you both say uh, payers can do to prepare maybe until rules are forthcoming?
2: Well, and Chelsea, I, I alluded to this right up front in one of the, uh, the key takeaways. And and you'll see in the research that nearly two-thirds of the payers, in the research, which was September, um, uh, two-thirds of the payers were still deciding how to deliver EO, AEOBs to uh, patients and providers. And over two-thirds were still deciding how they would even receive the AEOBs. Mm-hmm. And uh, that high degree of uncertainty, in my experience, uh, primarily in healthcare, but in every aspect of, of our lives, requires that we look at those alternatives. And we, sh- uh, we should be p- all payers and actually even working with their providers, their key providers, uh, brainstorming, working through specific plans for likely alternative outcomes. I mean, you know, we like to pigeonhole that and call it scenario planning, but it's, it's more robust than that. All stakeholders really should be getting into the details of if this, then that, and if not this, then something else and that, and flesh out, be prepared as things become more clear to take an action in one direction or another. Uh, if we wait, we'll never be able to catch up and we'll never be able to comply with the deadlines that are there. At least that's my feeling, Ed. Yeah, you know, I agree, Ferris. You know,
3: you know, even though they haven't come out with the actual regulation or proposed regulation for the advanced Explanation of Benefits, to getting ahead, uh, you know, to be able to at least have good plans on how you would be able to address it is really, really important. And You know people talk at the early on January 1st 2022 was um, you know the time which we had to get it done for advanced explanation of benefits and um, you know I really. Uh, want to compliment, um, you know, I'm sure not people, many people do this, but I'd like to compliment CMS for coming up with the guidance of saying, hey, let's go ahead and really understand uh, the nature of, of advanced explanation benefit and what's the right way of doing it, what's the right standards to use, and, and giving us some good uh, understanding there. So I appreciate some of those provisions being delayed, not because the industry couldn't accomplish it, but because, you know, let's figure out a way that's the right thing to do for the industry. So uh, thank you, CMS and Health and Human Services. And I'm not just saying that, <laughs> but it's true. Right. But, you know, really thinking through uh, the advanced explanation of benefits, you know, there are, you know, a number of people are uh, putting forward that EDI should be the uh, technology to be able to make the request and, and EDI would be the one that would help facilitate the advanced explanation of benefit, at least uh, to the provider, which is not actually covered in the current act, and, you know, being able to get the, of course, advanced explanation of benefits out to the, the member, um, you know, the DaVinci uh, with HL7 is working on uh, a more of advanced way using a fire type of a request, you'll be able to go with fire to fire server, and it allows it to be uh, potentially in the future to be more real time uh, than just the one to three day turnaround time that they're currently doing. So, you know, the, you know, there's things that are like that are being developed, but the, you know, when you really look at the providers, not all of them have uh, broadband access. You know, not all of them could do EDI. Not all of them could do Fire. right? Uh, you know, some of them might have still be able to call in the, uh, the request. Uh, you know, some may want to fax it in. You know, what I'm, what I'm seeing is that to be able to have a broad reach out to providers We need to have a multi-channel approach to being able to receive that predetermination request and to be able to deliver it to the members in different ways, both digitally as well as, you know, if you can do it from a timing perspective, you know, the the 10-day notice, three days through the paper, if we have to do it that way, Uh, hopefully not, Um, but also. it's, it's, it's just we, we need to consider the infrastructure at every point. So I, I have been a proponent of making sure for every touch point, whether it be to from providers requesting, whether we can deliver them information back to the provider or whether it's to the, the, the members, we need to have multi-channel approach across the board.
1: That's such a great point, Ed. I love that you mentioned the kind of the access issue. I think it's super important that the equity or uh, the access portion is is um, examined at every at every point. Not everyone, as we move, you know, technology moves rapidly, but sometimes humans don't. So I think that's a great point. So, uh, you know, we talk about compliance. People are unsure how to proceed. They might be waiting to hear what they have to do. What about those uh, early adopters, or as I like to call them, overachievers that are, are ready to, to get going to better position themselves in the market, as opposed to just respond to
3: uh, compliance needs. Uh, what would you uh, say about that, Ed? Well, I, first of all, I, I um, like to compliment those who are getting a, a step up on uh, making some progress there. I, I think that uh, shows uh, embracing what the spirit is. I mean, uh, an, another compliment i like to throw out there, this is about protecting people, uh, protecting people from surprise billings, uh, protecting people that are in emergency situations, protecting when coverage is dropped, uh, you know, or sorry, a, a, a network a provider now goes into work and providing some notice there to c- a continuity of care. And, you know, so, you know, I, I, I think it's important uh, for health plans and providers uh, to be able to embrace this because, you know, this is about people. Um, and so I, I do like that as part of the, the rule. Now, something that's a little frustrating to me related to the advanced explanation of benefit is that it feels more about fee for service, right? It, it doesn't, maybe you can talk about episodes of care as well, but it doesn't talk about some of the more advanced types of payment models, particularly capitated type payments. When would you do that if you're, you know, if a, if a provider is, is getting rewarded for, you know, taking care of their population and, and getting bonuses or, in getting you know, charges back when you're taking care of your population or not taking care of your population. How does this fit within those models? And I really wish that um, as an industry, we would really move more towards some of those value-based care facilities and empowering the providers to take care, you know, be enabled to be able to take care, sorry, members and, and patients take care of themselves. So that's just a passion of mine. Um, I do like this push for digitalization, uh, digitalization, sorry, as well as providing more transparency. Um, I, I, I wish that the um, the process wasn't a one-day, three-day turnaround. I really wish it was more real-time or near near real-time. Now, this kind of goes for my same concerns for prior authorization rule that was, it's now on hold. Is, you know, they gave, I think, a three day turnaround or a seven day turnaround, whether it was an urgent request or not. It's, I just really like to see us move real time. And I, I feel that this is the underpinnings um, uh, to uh, to hopefully get to a more modernized
2: system um, by moving towards something that could be real time. I think that's really important, Ed. And, uh, and you know, I, it, the, the thought has been going through my mind that uh, if we as consumers, when we went out to Expedia to book a trip and, and could see uh, availability of flights and hotels and car rentals and all of that, and we could, we could even see the, the price of them, but we had to wait one to three days to book the reservation. (laughs) What would have been the success of that? So I I think you've hit on an, an important part and you know, it's, it's, it's not about, uh, unfortunately, there's a component of this when you get down to the coding looks like fee for service, but it really is about value and outcomes and quality uh, across the entire healthcare system. And the lack of transparency in those areas is what I think has brought upon us the No Surprises Act, the regulatory aspects of it. So, you know, I, I think uh, there's an opportunity not just to better position ourselves, but get out in front of these issues. How We need to make healthcare more transparent and easier to use and uh, more efficient, uh, less variation in, in prices. And uh, we touched on two things, but I just want to articulate them right now. We've got a consumer transformation taking place in healthcare, and it's not gonna happen overnight. It's gonna take some time, uh, and this is part of it, but we also have this digital transformation that's taking place. It, it wasn't that long ago. It was the ARA funding stimulus package in 2008, 2009, where we started cl- creating electronic health records Up until that point, my medical record was that one or two inch thick file folder of paper. Nobody knew what was in that except me, if I was knowledgeable enough to to, to know that. So there's, there's big transformations taking place. And it's paramount, I think, for us to not just think compliance, but to think consumer convenience, to think the 21st century digital world that we're going into. Um, I I, you know, the end result is a better connection with consumers, more trust in the relationships around healthcare, more confidence in the services that they're going to be receiving and what they're going to, to cost. So I I think automation and electronics into healthcare are going to make a big difference. And as I said, no surprises act, I think will be a watershed moment for the transition that healthcare is going through.
1: Thank you, Ferris. Yeah, I know as a consumer, I'm super excited about some of these provisions. It's, it's nice to be able to look forward to some more transparency and more information to help us, uh, you know, choose better care for ourselves and our families. Um, so, uh, Ferris what role will vendors play, such as change healthcare, especially, <laughs> obviously, in answering some uh, market questions about the No Surprises Act?
2: You know, and that's a, that's a good question, Chelsea. And for uh, Ed, and for all of us, and for the audience in particular, I think we need to really be asking this question about all stakeholders, all vendors, all technology vendors. And unfortunately, or fortunately, a lot of the technology innovation that's coming is coming from technology parts of the healthcare payer industry. But, um, and, and and you will have a, a really good broader perspective from your work with the weedy uh, work groups that, that you're working on. But, uh, you know, in my mind, this is a new types of, type of claims process. If we're doing it right, we're, the No Surprises Act is just saying pre-adjudicate the, the upcoming claim that's coming down the, 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 the pike. At the same time, having worked with a lot of claim systems, they're not really set up to do a pre-claim adjudication. So uh, uh, technology uh, vendors like Change Healthcare and, and our, our other HCG technology partners are the backbone of this transition and the backbone of healthcare, And there needs to be a push to really look at the entire infrastructure that health plans are using to move forward prior to the encounter, rather than days or months after the encounter, to, to be, as you said, Ed, closer to real time. It's gonna require a lot of change and uh, a lot of new thinking around new systems, more consumer focus. But at a, at a high level, it isn't just change, it's everybody that has an opportunity here, Ed. And I don't know if you agree with that, but uh, Oh, well, I do, Ferris,
3: you know, it, you, know, you know, it's hard, I have to be careful, we're a weedy conference, I have to talk about change healthcare and talk about vendors in general. So I try to behave myself best I can. Um, but I can tell you, uh, I've had the opportunity of meeting um, uh, with adjudication vendors, uh, as well as some transparency ones. And uh, well, I really was surprised early on that adjudication vendors are really stepping up their estimation capabilities. And setting up APIs to get real time uh, to be able to accept these predetermination requests and to generate the EOB, especially for the larger health plans. Um, you know, I, I, I can I could see uh, a lot of them utilizing those sources, but it's you know that's only a part of the picture, right? Um, it's the interface to the providers. It's the you know interface to the members. The interface back to the providers. Uh, it, it's um, pretty complex. So I can see uh, also transparency vendors I've spoken to are looking at being able to get in the mode of generating requests for more of the mid-market type payers. I know change healthcare is in that um, realm as well, as well as being able to reach out to that ecosystem, you know, portals and, you know, uh, EDI and paper electronic and uh, eventually fire, you know, be able to handle all those different multi-channels Uh, is is important to consider and, I know Change Healthcare is looking at all those options and the different touch points. Uh, You you know, know, again, I I think a health plan really should look at that ecosystem of their providers and their members uh, and understanding uh, what kind of multi-channel approach you should take. Um, You know, a lot of folks are also looking at being able to normalize the requests. Uh, EDI seems to be a pretty good one. Uh, however, the 5010 version only works for dental and predetermination requests right now. Uh, and we need to step it up. And I know some folks are looking at using special elements in the EDI to be able to convey the predict, uh, in the 5010 version to, to make that request. And others are saying, gosh, let's use 8020. Let's push the industry to adopt the 8020 of the 837 to make that happen. And, and whether that would be the interface points between Uh, The provider making the request and the actual uh, way in which you'd be able to receive it, Um, you know, that request, whether through web services, again, multi-channel, you need to consider all that. Um, So um, it's, you know, I I, I always like opportunities where you can reach out to as many people as possible and uh, leveraging your strengths of what you already have to be able to um, provide uh, to those uh, different folks. So that's where I'm at.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Ed. So I know we've talked about this a little bit already, but maybe there's maybe there's additional thought here. Um, if a payer is looking to be an early adopter slash overachiever um, and start implementing solutions in the spirit of the NSA, uh, Ferris, where would you suggest they start? And can they work with vendors like Change Healthcare on Solutions?
2: I, a- absolutely. And, and sort of building on the uh, on, on Ed's comments uh, before and, and comments that I've, I've, I've made as well. In the uh, survey results that you'll be able to look at, um, you know, there, we ask a specific question and roughly a third of the responders indicated that they're looking for partners uh, or assistance in some of these solutions. Uh, but 25 to 45% are unsure of, of how, how they uh, should get started and what their approach would be. So, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier uh, uh, the claim system, that's a place to start. It's not just about uh, claims, but it's about ex- exchanging information before, during, and after uh, the, uh, uh, the medical uh, encounter. And so all the systems need to be uh, reevaluated. And and Ed, you just mentioned, you know, the the 5010 and the fact that it's used in the dental. I think the place to start is to learn outside right. of your organization right. what others are doing. Talk with the technology vendors out there. Hear what their solutions are. Change has a lot of them. Uh, if, if the merger with change and often takes place, there'll be even a lot more of them that are there, but, but, uh, you know, from the small vendors to the large vendors, there's change happening and we need the innovative thoughts from everyone to move forward. Um, uh, Ed more to that. Yeah.
3: yeah. I would think, uh, Weedy, I think that's one of the strengths of Weedy is that's a place you can collaborate with others and, and to exchange information. I think same thing with HCEG, right? There's different organizations where you can um, share and learn from each other, learn about the problem sets, learn about successful approaches and, and what others are doing. So I think that's a really good place to start. So I I, I like that insight there, Ferris. I'd also uh, suggest just from um, the old system analyst in me, right? I, I like to be able to uh, have you have recommend payers, really evaluate what your current vendor plans are, what's the status of your readiness of your own systems, and how you can actually, if you don't, if we aren't using vendors, if you have your own systems, how could you go ahead and leverage those, or what's the vendor's plans of leveraging theirs, Uh, what's the gaps, Um, identify those gaps in those current uh, solutions, and decide whether you need to um, do it yourself, or partner, or uh, or seek out a third party partner that, you know, isn't involved in, you know, I think it's a, a good analysis. And I think now's the time to do it. It's not until the rules released. Let's, let's get on with that. Uh, that'd be a wonderful Christmas project for Paris. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>
3: right. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think if you're partnering with other vendors, you know, change healthcare, um, Pays me to say change healthcare is the best, but you know, uh, you know, use your judgment and, and, and trying to find a development partner that is, is works well with you.
1: So oh, I know, I know. We've already praised the HHS and praised. Uh, we're all very happy that this is happening and that they're taking accounts uh, account of what people think. Um, but what do we think? Uh, do we think the NSA will have its intended effect? That it will have a favorable impact on? the cost of healthcare, um, will it help restore or create in the first place more consumer trust in the healthcare system? Uh, wh- what do you think, Ed?
3: Well, yeah, good question, uh, Chelsea. I, I think the out-of-network or out-of, sorry, out-of-pocket costs related to out-of-network surprises, um, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's gonna be, uh, well, sorry, take, take a step back. Um, understanding, for example, transparency and coverage, the out-of-pocket costs or from the AEOB, the out-of-pocket costs, I think it's transparency that's gonna be really welcome. Of course, the accuracy of those uh, is the next step. So that's gonna be a little scary. Um, I, yeah, I think the protection for no surprises has, has been uh, uh, very, uh, has been helpful. Um, you know, Exposing um, provider costs, particularly transparency and coverage. So I know we're jumping to a different regulation, but being able to uh, check out the competition between providers and what's going to cost you from one to another uh, provides some insight to the um, uh, members that or patients that just took things for granted. You know, I'm going to go to see my doctor. It's going to cost me whatever they say it's going to cost me. And now all of a sudden, you can shop for drugs. You'll be able to shop for your procedures across different providers. What I really like to see, though, is quality. Right? I mean. Uh, You know, it's when you're when you're looking for, um, you know, a good restaurant to go to, you know, I like to see those dollar signs next to it, although my wife would like to pick the three dollar ones. I like the one or two dollar (laughs) ones. Right. But, you know, what's the quality? I mean, do people like that place or not? And uh, I think that's an important element to, to also look for. I think it provides the infrastructure to add that quality.
2: I, and I, I, I agree, Ed, I, you know, but I've learned in my years in, in healthcare, care, I've heard many times, it's the price. Yeah. Uh, it's the price. And, um, you know, uh, tran- transparency mandate, the No Surprises Act, all of that should be narrowing the price variation, which should open up more competition. And so, Chelsea, in answer to your question, uh, competition typically does lead to uh, uh, to to lower costs lower lower prices uh, so it, it, it could also mean that uh, the out of area networks themselves the number of providers out of network gets smaller and smaller because there's less of a reason to to go into price uh, or contract negotiations you just well be if the prices are, are small I Coming back to this theme of the consumer, I, I don't know where this is going to play out in the consumer's mind. You know, they're, they're going to see uh, uh, an advanced EOB and then they'll see their, their charges at the end. How much variation is going to be acceptable to them? Is, uh, if, if it's off by a penny, are they going to be concerned or a dollar or ten dollars or a thousand dollars? It depends on the procedure, but it's going to open up. Uh, a very different set of discussions, which I think is right at the heart of the No Surprises Act's intention. Um, in, I, I took my grandkids to Frozen 2 uh, almost, uh, well, it was uh, during uh, the early part of, of COVID. And the, towards the end in Frozen 2, there's a song, uh, The Next Best Right Thing, and if we had a theme song, that probably should be what everybody in healthcare is singing. We should be doing the next best right thing and start now, not just because of the mandate, because it is the right thing to, uh, to be more transparent, to remove these surprises from healthcare. And the research that uh, came out of, of, of this survey, Ed, I think supports that in, in multiple ways.
3: Uh, Ferris, I'd like to add a few things. And First of all, I would love to hear you sing, but uh, that, that's... Uh, no, 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 no. Okay. no maybe no, another no. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd like to just maybe take a little tangent discussion. Uh, a friend of mine um, uh, who's a VP in a, a, a large blue health plan uh, mentioned something to me that was pretty profound. It's like, gosh, if, if the out-of-network Providers are being paid similar to the in-network providers, you know, on, on the procedures. You know, in the past, the, uh, having a great provider network was critical, you know, for a health plan to differentiate itself. And now, of a sudden, it's harder, right? I mean, why would an out-of-network, in, in the case from a, at least from a cost perspective, why would an out-of-network provider join a, a, a health plan network? Uh, if they knew they were going to get a great QPA, you know, a, a reasonable QPA price. Um, so what I kind of come to is, you know, differentiating your provider network by quality again, um, understanding things like readmissions um, for this particular one, surveys and happiness and adding qualities from industry uh, ratings and, um, you know, being a, a, for a health plan, having a being in the trusted place to say, these are the cool providers to go to, to be, you know, or, you know, uh, you know to be, you know, to trust that you're gonna get good health care um, uh, from them. Uh, and also, uh, you know, I know uh, in the AEOB for an out-of-network provider, they do mention, at least in the act, uh, that would be helpful for the payer to give a list of in-network providers. And so you know having that list be in or providers of high quality you know would be something would be a, a little twist so that, that's just something just to kind of add what it relates to you know, what we just discussed
2: I, I and 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 I could don't think I could summarize much better uh, Chelsea's had some great questions for us there's a lot more things that we could talk about in the in the survey results uh, I, I'd encourage everybody to look at those results and then uh, you know get, give, send me an email, send Ed an email, uh, give us a call. Uh, these are discussions that we're having every day. But, uh, you know, when you said, uh, you know, good networks were critical in the past, uh, unfortunately, too much of those good networks were based on price alone. Mm-hmm. If, if those good networks had been high quality networks, as well as good cost networks, I think healthcare costs in general would be at a, at a very different place right, right now today. And I think the competition would have been different. Uh, there's been just too much focus on negotiating a, a, a charge master as opposed to really getting into what's important to the consumer. And it isn't necessarily more healthcare, it's better health and well being. Uh, the consumer. The, the consumer's money is very important. And, and Chelsea, your question goes at that. What's the cost? But at the same time, in today's world, I think the consumer's time is also a scarce commodity. And we need to recognize that lowering the cost isn't just lowering the price, it's lowering the time that the providers have to spend on the administrative aspects of healthcare, lowering the time the consumers have to spend in understanding and engaging with healthcare. And if we do that, we'll be complying with the No Surprises Act, but we'll also be moving healthcare forward in the ways that all of our research over the years has said healthcare needs to do. So I appreciate your comments, Chelsea, great questions. It's been a delight for HCG to be a part of this and and thank you and thanks to those of you that are taking the time to listen. Yeah, thank you guys.
1: I'd really like to just take a second to thank you both so much for sharing your insight with us. It's so valuable. And from a change healthcare perspective, I just wanna let our listeners know that they can view the full survey results Uh, as well as just a lot more information on the No Surprises Act and other government mandates um, at our site. It's info.changehealthcare.com slash supporting-government-mandates. And I know that's a mouthful. So you can also follow us on our social media and get the link there. (laughs) That is easier. But thank you both so much. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for tuning in, everyone.
2: Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks.
1: You've been listening
0: to the Change Healthcare podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare platform. We provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at ChangeHealthcare.com.